Hello everyone, my name is Jack Fernan and this is Exploring Existence, the podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through the lens of personal experiences. Today on the podcast, I spoke with Father Dave Smith, who is better known as Fighting Father Dave. Father Dave has been the Anglican priest for the parish of Dulwich Hill in Sydney's Inner West for the past 30 years, and in this position he has used boxing and the martial arts as a means to communicate and reach out to the at-risk youth that has lived in his area and surrounds. He is also Australia's oldest professional boxer and is the previous holder of the world record for most number of consecutive rounds of boxing. Before our interview, I met Father Dave for lunch at a cafe down the road from his parish, and one of the first things I noted about him, as he told me about the numerous projects that he has been involved in throughout his career, was his unquenchable thirst for justice. Beyond working in the Inner West, Father Dave has worked extensively in the Middle East, including in Syria, Iran, and Israel and Palestine, and has also been a tireless advocate for refugees' rights in Australia. We began our recorded conversation talking about Father Dave's time growing up in the inner west of Sydney, which he describes then as being the heroin capital of the inner west, and how his troubled childhood resulting in being led by God to the priesthood. We then spoke about Father Dave's work with the youth of his area, and how he began using boxing first as a way of making money to support his youth services, and then as a way of connecting with those in need. As you will hear, it's not just the physical exercise and camaraderie of the boxing gym that Father Dave sees as being beneficial, but he also sees it as a spiritual practice where our humanity is both challenged and reasserted. We discussed Father Dave's work in both Syria and Iran, and how he has continued to use boxing in these areas as a way of bringing hope to the otherwise devastated communities. We finished by exploring Father Dave's work promoting interfaith dialogue and his soon-to-be-published work, Christians and Muslims can be friends. And so everyone, thank you for joining us and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Father Dave, thanks for having me here today to have a bit of a chat with you. No problem, Jack. We're here in uh, in Dulwich Hill, which you've been for, for 30 years and we were talking yeah. a little bit before starting about what life was like in this community before, when you arrived here. Yeah, yeah, I got here in December 1990 and... Uh, we were very much the heroin capital of the inner west <laughs> back then, and right, really, right through to the early two thousands. Um, but you know, I'd grown up in this area, in Newtown, down the road, and uh, Dulwich Hill was always notorious. Uh, I remember when I was at school in um, Petersham, I, I used to get the plan of first in football because. Uh, no one would show up when we played Dulwich Hill. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, at one point, their team drew, drew a knife on our ref, you know what I mean? Like, it was, um, yeah, they, they, we always figured they were in their, the kids were in their 30s because they had beards, you know, <laughs> still trying to pass their HSC, you know. But it was, um, they were a rough bunch back then. And as I say, when we got here in the 90s, the teenagers here, none of them would, walk the streets at night you wouldn't you just wouldn't do it it was too dangerous yeah yeah but you'd grew up grown up around this place and your dad was a minister Mm -hmm. wasn't Mm -hmm. he Mm -hmm. was he part of the inspiration for you pursuing that sort of life as well it's a good question i mean i I sort of went off the rails when my mum died when i was 16 um and that's when i really got into the 
punk rock movement and uh, in the in the 70s and um I, I you know I was wearing a lot of chains and uh <laughs> and you know and it was it was rough you know what I mean and we were hanging around with other people who were you know gangs and it was it was it was rough and abusive yeah my dad was a key person turning me around in that um you know, I remember he kept talking to me during that period and I was very much sort of in rebellion and uh, particularly against the whole, you know, the biblical God gives us commandments and this sort of thing, you know, uh, very anti-authority. Still am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I remember it was actually something my dad said to me that, that, you know, I said, oh, look, you know, if we didn't have these you know, Ten Commandments and that, we wouldn't know what right and wrong was anyway. And Dad's saying to me, no, no, I think deep down we all know, you know, we have a sense of right and wrong. And uh, that was something that really got me thinking. I reached a point in myself, I I was at a very low ebb, you know, I really reached a point where I felt I had no friends and um, no future, to paraphrase the famous Sex Pistols song. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but I, I, I found that deep down I still had a sense you know, I've been trying to convince myself that what I was doing wasn't right or wrong. It was just me. But I, had, I realized I had an inescapable sense. I actually knew a lot of things I was doing was wrong, and I couldn't get away from that. And for me, that was an awareness. That there was a, another voice that I couldn't get out of my head. There was someone else out there who seemed to be interested in the way I lived, and that ultimately led me to uh, pray and to sort of say to God, look, I'm not making a very good job of this. If you want to have a go, you're welcome. And... It was, I had a real, what they call a religious experience, you know, an experience of uh, God in my little bedroom there back when I was 18 years old that um, was really transformative. And, yeah, I never felt the same after that. And I just found I stopped being angry all the time and stopped wearing, stopped carrying a knife, stopped um, wearing all the chains, yeah, and then after a while, I thought, you know, I could have become a priest. <laughs> <laughs> that was, which was sort of ironic because all my life I'd sort of, you know, because my dad was a priest and we hung around with other people. Oh yeah, when I grow old, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, I struggled with that for quite a while, and eventually I sort of gave myself into that one as well. And said, okay, look, yeah, that's what you want, you know, and um, yeah. I sort of set myself on that path after that. And um, and what happened in that religious experience that you had when you were 18? It's interesting, isn't it? It was Rudolf Otto who described it as the experience of the numinous and the holy. I think he chronicled a whole lot of um, uh, people who had those experiences. Was it William James's writings of religious experience? You know what I mean? Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of commonalities in those sorts of... Um, mm. Because that was the first great sociological work on yeah on those experiences yeah yeah I mean I still what was fascinating was I met with a friend yesterday who uh, I had no idea was religious at all except that he dropped some line in uh, from the Bible which I thought I said you must have an evangelical background and then he told me his story and how he'd given his life to God and had this experience and it just rang all these bells for me in terms of I said look I had exactly this same sort of experience you know, 40 years ago, and uh, still sticks with me too. I remember, as I said to him, I said, you know, Blaise Pascal, the, the philosopher, 
sewed the account of his religious experience inside his jacket like they found it there when he died, you know. It was something he kept going back to. And as I reminded my friend yesterday, I said, look, you look in the in the New Testament, St. Paul repeats his religious experience on the road to Damascus over and over again. He keeps coming back to it because that's sort of what everything hinged on for him. It completely turned his life around. And when he felt vulnerable, I think he kept going back to that. You know, and I found I've done the same often when I felt vulnerable. You know, I've gone back to that experience, even 40 years ago now, was I was 18. What happened exactly? I'm less and less sure now, but a sense of the presence of God with me. Yeah, that was the main thing. An overwhelming sense of the presence of God. Yeah. And was it like a loving presence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. An embracing, warm presence. Yeah. 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 And it's not something I've had again since to that extent ever. I mean, I had other sort of experiences, I think, but nothing like that. Yeah. And you sort of go from having that sort of loving experience to becoming a, a priest and then you come to an area like this, hmm. which is, for want of a better word, downtrodden. And- well, it was it was full of kids who were no better than I was. You know, I always said, and I, I sort of still believe that I've never met a kid who was worse than I was. Um, maybe I have. <laughs> <laughs> I've met some funny guys, but really not really. You know, like, I don't think so. I don't think I've ever met a kid that was more... Worse, worse than me. Yeah. I don't mean I did the most terrible things, but just more disturbed, off track, incapable of dealing with stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was my chance to give back, you know, and to work with people who were where I was. You know, I think some of them a little less self-aware than I was, but um, often struggling with exactly the same issues of identity and dealing with anger, disillusionment, relationship breakdown, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's still what I'm dealing with all the time. So those are the sort of issues that you see keep coming up again and again. Well, these are the human issues, aren't they, you know? I mean, yeah. (laughs) Now, it's not happening in the church so much, it's happening in the fight club, but, I mean, if I could think of, you know... I had a number of intense conversations with some of the brothers there last night, you know, who were struggling in their marriages, struggling in their families. And, uh, yeah, it's not the same struggle as it was 30 years ago, you know. In, in some ways that was easier. It was generally to do with drugs and everything. You know, this was the heroin gap of the NOS. We just had drugs everywhere. I remember when we, I had a meeting with the other church priests and that in the region and everyone said you know what's the biggest problem in your church and my answer was the amount of stolen property on church premises (laughs) (laughs) i mean we're running a youth center and the amount of car radios being traded there on a daily basis (laughs) oh yeah it fell off the back of a truck you know sort of stuff which is just stopping the the drug trade in the premises and out the front door which is mostly where it happened on the street and i'd be running out there get get out of here you know um, yeah, I mean, as I say, we had a lot of people OD on site. But, you know, and the kids used to hang in and dry out every afternoon. And I'd always have, like, on our in our hall, there'd be a, just a range of people just drying out. 
And I said, look, better they dry out here than on the street where they're going to get rolled. Yeah. So I didn't have a problem with that, but some of the neighbours did. <laughs> yeah, we had one neighbour in particular who was convinced I was bringing down the, hot, the, the value of his property, you know, because of the sort of kids I had hanging out here. And he threatened to kill me, but and that got hairy. But yeah, I mean, apart from you know, we, we, it, it was one of those works that everybody loves unless it's in their street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Just not here. Yeah. yeah, just they really love what you're doing. Just do it somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, you um, you mentioned the the Fight Club, which mm. probably in Australia at least is what you're most famous for. Mm. Um, you have the, the sort of tagline, Fighting Father Dave. And, I tries. <laughs> yeah. And so was that, was the Fight Club something that you set up in order to help these, yeah. these yeah. kids? Yeah, I mean, also, I mean, initially, to be quite honest too, I came here part-time. I was trying to finish a social work degree at uni and um, I was here part-time. I wasn't really getting a wage and I thought, you know, if I run some martial arts classes that might help supplement the income, you know. Um, that was also, But increasingly, very quickly, it just became, no, this is the way of making contact with the young people in the area, you know. And as I say, I'd been a young person. I knew, you know, the problems facing young people in this area. I've been a young person. I've been a young person in this area, and I, mm-hmm. I understood that this was a very difficult area for young men, I think, in particular, in terms of the violence. You know, you just wouldn't go out in the street. Ever. Like yeah. at night, if you could avoid it, you know, there were the gangs and it was just too rough, you know. And I thought, yeah, this is the way, this is the way to make contact, you know. And it, it just worked, you know, it's just worked ever since. So, so I remember one guy saying to me, you know, I don't like priests, but I trust fighters, you know. And I find that with a lot of people, you know, they don't trust clergy. I can understand that. Mm. I mean, what Kierkegaard said that it's good that. Priests wear a lot of robes, so they've got a lot to hide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I think often, I think in the Australian culture too, I think we don't like the guy who puts himself on a pedestal who calls himself the very reverend Mr. Such and Such, you know, and wears his bloody garb and looks a little superior to everybody else, you know. But the fighter's someone who's just there in his underwear, you know what I mean? He is who he is and he's, he's just there with his fists and... Um, just just another body, another another one of the boys. Yeah, you know, because fighting really is, and and boxing in particular is one of those sports where you get in the ring and it's just you there. Yeah, there's no teammate. There's not there's not even a ball in play that gives you. Well, I mean, truth is, your connection with your corner team is just vital. You know, the the fighter knows that. But yeah, it's it very much. It's just you and your body, you know, and the other guy and his body. And it's very raw and very real, you know, and I think that's why, and I think that's true in the culture as well. I just remember one guy down at the Monday gym saying to me, you know, Randy, we stab no one in the back, mate. We stab here, you know, putting a finger in my chest. <laughs> stab him in the front, yeah. Yeah, we stab here. And I, I really respect that, you know. All the people I've had trouble with in my 30 years here, they've never been the guys who stab here. It's always been the ones who stab you in the back. It's always been the sophisticated people, the uh, professional people who smile to your face and sabotage you mm. while you're not watching, you know. And 
maybe I'm just not smart enough to know how to deal with that, you know, but it's a whole culture there that I despise. Yeah. You know, yeah. And so what do you think it is about fighting that uh, helps a lot of these kids? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's really ultimately something spiritual. You know, I've, I've, I go back to um, uh, Plato's Republic, as I often do. <laughs> See, <laughs> philosophy is my first love, you know, I've got a kick garden of Plato. Yeah. Uh, but if you're familiar with um, the Republic, as I'm sure you are. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, the, the argument there is about, you know, what is justice, what is good? And um, I, in the final part of the dialogue, Socrates says, well, you know, you've got just societies, you've got just individuals, maybe look at the bigger model, we'll work out the smaller one. And so you look at the bigger model, just society has, has rulers, it has workers, it has an army, you know? And a just society is when every component is doing its, playing its part, isn't it? So the rulers are ruling, the workers are working, the army is fighting. And the parallel is on the individual, you've got the same thing. You've got the ruler, you know, the mind, you've got the workers, which is your body, and you've got what the Greek call the thamos, which is like the fighting spirit, you know. And I just think it's fascinating that from the wisdom of the ancient Greeks, it's like a one-third component of the human person is this aggression, this fighting spirit, you know. And I think, yeah, it, in men in particular, I think maybe genetically or maybe whatever, but we need to fight. You know, I often say um, uh, men, we're, we're defined by three loves. You know, we, we, we love women, we love to work, we love to fight. You know, no, no, not all men love to fight. Not all men love women. That's okay. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, but for the most part, uh, it's sort of who we are, you know. So I think it, it really comes down to some very – basic fundamental identity issues. And I've worked with men and boys um, in every context, in different countries around the world, you know, and you get in and rumble with them, you build trust, you make connection in a real way, you know. And, uh, you know, we were talking about this earlier, but connecting physically with people, I think amongst men in particular. Um, and, you know, it's part of the problem in our Australian society, you know, we just don't touch each other. Now, of course, coronavirus, we've been told we can't touch each other. But I used to say the boxing ring is like the last place where uh, heterosexual men can embrace without being having to be drunk first. <laughs> 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 you know, you get a few beers and I am a mess, mate, I really yeah. love you. You know, we're all yeah, over each right. other, you know. <laughs> Reaching over. Yeah, that's yeah. right, we're all over each other. But normally it's sort of this punch in the arm, sort of, yeah, bravado bullshit type stuff. But mm. in the ring, man, we're real with each other, you know, we embrace in a very heterosexual male way, you know what I mean? It's not a sexual thing, it's a, but it's still an intimate thing. And I think that level of intimacy uh, is, is really spiritually fundamental to who we are as people and as men, you know. I think it works differently with women, and obviously, you know, the physical contact with women, it's hard to escape a sexual dimension to that, you know. Uh, which I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's just it, it's, uh, it complicates things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, amongst men, we need to be able to touch each other, I think. We need to be able to embrace. I think it's fundamental to who we are. And embracing in that combative but sporting uh, environment, if it's done properly, I think can be a very, well, it's been proven to be a very healing thing, uh, very vital thing, I think, for growth. You know, you go back to the... in. Um, 
traditional societies where they have initiation ceremonies, which, you know, is so, so broad amongst different cultures around the world throughout time, you know, where uh, the uh, older men in the village would take the young boys out into the woods, or, you know, into the jungle, and they'd have to survive there for a while, and they'd have various initiation rites, you know, into adulthood. And they always involve blood, <laughs> you know what I mean? They always involve testing and blood and... Uh, you know, I think in a sense what we do with the young guys when we get them to the side of the ring for their first amateur fight, you know, it's it's very parallel. Uh, but me and the guy's dad, you know, perhaps taking them on the side of the ring, so all right, son, out you go. Uh, come back in three rounds' time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah win, lose, or draw. You just show us that you've got the, the uh, courage and the focus uh, to stay on your feet and to... to Handle it out there. Yeah, while rounds. someone's trying to... While someone's trying to kill you. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, if, if we had a thing and then they come back afterwards and we, then we give them the car keys and say, okay, now we know you can handle. Uh, you've got the responsibility. You know how to handle power. Yeah. You know? Because um, that's that's the great thing. Uh, you, you learn in boxing and the fighting arts, you, you, you come to terms with your humanity Quickly, you both learn your power and you learn your limitations. You know what I mean? You know what you can do and that you can hurt, but also that you're fragile as well. You know, so the, the just the fundamental realities of life are laid bare in, in the ring, I think, in, in that very intimate and intense environment. And, yeah, if you can keep your focus there and you can rise above your natural reaction to run away... <laughs> <laughs> Put your head in the sand, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, and actually, you know, allow you to become proactive, you know. As I say, it's, we're so used to being reacting. You know, the, someone, it's what Jesus says, you know, someone slaps you on, on the on the cheek, you, you slap back, you know what I mean? Someone shouts at you, you shout back. Someone swears at you, you swear at them. Be able to, to have someone punch you in the nose and not just responsibly punch them back but think okay i should not have been standing there yeah <laughs> <laughs> moving slightly to the side yeah. readjusting my angle and not reacting but actually thinking proactively and taking control and not being controlled by my pain because that's the thing and that's the thing with the with the the drug problems i remember we had one guy staying with us an old friend and i said to him mate this you're in your 30s now this is you're back on the heroin again the hit can't be that good, brother, you know. And, I mean, I was naive. I didn't understand then. And he told me, he said, Dave, he said, it's not that it's that good. It's just I don't know how else to deal with the pain. Yeah. And yeah, I realised, yeah. yeah, after that, from that day forward, I realized it's always that way. It's how we deal with the pain. Yeah. You yeah. know, and uh, not allowing ourselves to be controlled by our pain and and, and our fear and uh you you learn that in, in the in the boxing ring, or you learn it the hard way. Otherwise, you know, but or maybe some people never learn it. But you know, you look at our society at the moment, we're being um, controlled by fear. Everybody seems to be controlled by fear. What's the scripture say? Perfect love casts out all fear. I think that's right. You know, we've got to, and you, you can't as a as a fighter, you learn not to let your fear control you. Mm. If your fear controls you, you you. you tense up and you, you you die you know it doesn't work you fall apart you've got to become proactive you've got to overcome your natural emotional response be it one of anger 
or, or one of fear or whatever. You've got to be able to take control and make your decisions based on, you know, what you believe is, is the right thing to do. You know, and this what we're talking about there is adulthood, isn't it? This is what human maturity is about, about being able to take control. I think we have too few people who ever really grow up. Yeah. You seem to take the this this fighting mantra on for yourself as well. It's not just a teaching thing. Oh. You you get in the ring, you do you do rounds with people, you broke the world record for going the, the longest number of consecutive rounds and what did you get to? 120 consecutive rounds? Yeah. And they weren't just I watched no, some they of weren't, those. they weren't easy rounds. Yeah. <laughs> you were getting in with some serious people. Mm. Oh, I had some people trying to smash me. Yeah, the likes of um, uh, Mundine. Mundine, Solomono, Snader Hand Dan. And mind you, they weren't the ones who tried to smash me. I can tell you, the one round I had, which really was scary. Well, it's an interesting story because afterwards my wife came up and said, you know, what was the hardest round? And I said, oh, that round in 94 and 5, whatever that that bandito guy, you know, he was bad, man. Because this, what had happened was this guy got in. The others were all wearing headgears. I wasn't wearing headgear because I didn't want to overheat. And um, this guy gets in, you know, he's built like a greyhound, like, you know, no body fat. Little ponytail out the back of the headpiece. Okay, bandito guy, yeah. This guy goes for me. Like, really went for me. And... Um, I think this is crazy, man. I'm in like around 90-something. I've been boxing for like six hours, you know. This is a fundraiser, bro, you know. Anyway, I don't – I just – I survived the round. And then has a word – the corner has a word to, to him, you know, it comes out harder the second round. I think, fuck this, man. And I remember I thought, this is it, man. I spun him onto the ropes and I caught him with a, like a, a hook and two – no, that's right, a body hook and then a hook to the head – and stood back to watch him fall over. He didn't fall over. He came bouncing off stronger than ever, you know. Anyway, somehow I survived those two rounds, right? Thank you. Anyway, so who was the hardest person you fought? Yeah, that bandito. I says, she said, it was a woman. I said, no, 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 no. She said, ponytail at the back. Yeah. She said, it was the German welterweight champion. (laughs) 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 What do I say? I felt shit about it because... I tried to smash a woman, you know what I mean? I mean, I really – and I, I tried to sm- smash her, you know. I, she didn't mind. We, we became good friends afterwards. But yeah, yeah. at the time, I think, oh, God. It, it reminded me of an experience much earlier, you know, just how your perception changes the past. When I used to work in King's Cross in the uh, – back in the uh, – when was it? 80, uh, mid-'80s and at the church there, we, we set up – a coffee shop there in uh, what was the lane? Transvestite Alley it used to be called. We were were working a lot with the transvestite community there and every now and then you get some guy who'd come in who'd been serviced by one of the girls who just realised it wasn't a girl. (laughs) You get this guy who's sort of coming in not knowing who he was and wanting to throw up and not, you know, all over the place. And you'd sort of want to say to the guy, look, mate, it was the same experience. But at the same time, you actually realise, yes, it's not the same experience. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, you know, it's the same. In a sense, my, my bout with that girl was the same experience. But looking back and realising it was a woman, it was a totally different experience. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. don't brutalise women. Come on, you know. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, yeah. Anyway, that was it. Was uh, it was a big day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I lost something like six or seven kilos in that yeah, on, that period. On just yeah, the day. yeah, just on the day. You know, I mean, I was hydrating as I went. But, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it really um, took it out of me. And yeah. and that must have been quite inspirational for some of the kids in in your gym. Um, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I mean, we raised some good money through it, some good coin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which was why that's. It was always... Um, Which is all you really hope for. It's the reason I kept doing it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, this is how it started. I don't know if you, you want me to give you that story. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it started with me owing a 1000 bucks to our youth worker. We, we we took on, when we opened full-time, I had a lovely guy who was working with us as uh, helping with the kids. But I can I said, look, I know you a 1000 bucks a month. That's all we can manage, you know. And um, it's Okay. And I was a thousand bucks short. I couldn't pay him for the month. And I actually had the archdeacon, the assistant to the bishop, in my office wagging his finger at me. I mean, Dave, you've got to close this youth drop-in down. You've got no money to pay your workers. And me saying, yeah, look, have a bit of faith. Something will come. Hmm. And then my boxing trainer comes to the door. Actually, it was boxing trainer. I never had a boxing match in my life. It was my kickboxing trainer. He was a boxer. But I just fought for the New South Wales... Like, uh, uh, super welterweight title it was uh, amateur kickboxing uh, lost <laughs> that was my goal I was going to fight for a title I'd fought for the title I didn't win anyway my trainer comes to the door and says Dave you want a pro fight boxing I go no why would I want a pro fight yeah, they're offering you a thousand bucks <laughs> so I'll take it yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I never had a boxing match um, my first fight pro fight and uh <laughs> Yeah, it, it, we raised about 50 grand for that fight. Wow. Yeah, I, I was on the back page of the City Morning Herald, and uh, that's when I got the call from Ray Williams and people like that, formerly of HH Insurance, and who's still a great friend. Yeah. And a beautiful man. Uh, and, yeah, just people donated money on the basis of that, and that's how uh, we got started on the whole fighting thing. That's a way of raising funds. Yeah. And after that, I just... Started putting on shows, and I put myself on as the main event at every show. You know. Yeah, of course. And well, we just kept raising. But that's how we kept going. We kept the youth center running with staff for nine ninety four to like two years ago when it was no longer necessary. So twenty something years, and um, we funded it almost, you know, just off donations. We never, the church never had the money. We certainly never got anything from the, the like the government or. Uh, basically through the fighting. Yeah. You know, so, so yeah, and I got a draw. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out I was set up. Interesting. I won't mention any of the promoter, but he's a very scurrilous man, but most, not all, but boxing promoting isn't known for being <laughs> the most honest. <laughs> but this guy, he said, oh, Dave, you'll be fine, man. He said, the other guys, he had three fights. He only won. One of them because the other guy got so tired of hitting him, he fell over, you know. And stupid me, stupid me in the lead up for that fight. I really, I, sh- I did not do any research into the other guy at all. I don't know why my trainer didn't, but I did no research. I spent all my time doing media appearances. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get the dollars. Yeah. It wasn't until I literally got in the ring and heard the other, the announcer say the other guy had seven fights and won all of them. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I was set up. <laughs> and yeah, he almost knocked me out in the first round. 
Oh, wow. It's, it's an interesting story, actually, because, you know, I came back in the later rounds and I scratched, scratched out a draw, luckily. And uh, he was so angry afterwards. He would not shake hands with me. I want a rematch, you know. 20 years later, yes, it was 20, maybe 21, 22 years later, I get a call one night, boom, this is Dimitri Patsouris, that father Dave. Yeah, you probably remember me as Jimmy Pat. Yeah, I remember you. <laughs> we fought 20 years ago. Yeah, I remember you. I've got two things to say to you. Just one, I'm really sorry about the way I behaved that night. Oh, thank you. Number two, you hit fucking hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dimitri and I have been best mates ever since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we actually, last year we did a, a bit of a rematch. Uh, what was it last year? We were raising money for Syria again and... Um, put on a bit of an exhibition fight here. He's still going to. He won't give me a proper rematch show now. <laughs> no, he won't do it. You'd probably clean him up. <laughs> I was like, come on, mate. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just, just for Is this a call out? Jimmy, mate, I'm calling you out. <laughs> he's too good a friend for me to do that. Him and his lovely wife, Monica, they're gorgeous people and I love them both and wouldn't uh, never push him. Oh, I'd love that rematch. I'll make it get You mentioned Syria there just briefly. Um, and your your fight has not just been locally mm. here in Dulwich mm. Hill. No. You, you've taken on causes overseas and, and some of the biggest international causes well, that are out there. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't look for it. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting with the whole Syria connection. Middle, you know, I can say as things have changed here in Dulwich Hill, you know, there's been less of a, you know, the, back in the... 20 years ago, I was three, four nights a week down at the police station, you know. I, it wasn't as if I am full on. There wasn't room for anything else, you know, but times change and the area changed. As I say, we go from being the heroin capital of the inner west to being the latte-sipping capital of the inner west, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> and eventually the eternal wasn't needed. You know, we, we, we set it up as a safe space for kids in the area. And we reached the point where the kids were complaining about the smelly homeless guys coming in, Okay. <laughs> we don't need a safe space anymore. You know, we didn't, and that's okay. It had its time, you know. But, yeah, it meant there was more uh, space to take on other work, you know, which I think how we were able to then extend ourselves in the social justice area, uh, and not just Syria. But, I mean, Syria was an interesting one because I, I didn't know anything about Syria. I don't know any Syrians. I, I didn't know where Syria was on the map, you know. Uh, and I found when, when we had those reports coming out in 2011, I think it was, or 12, mm. about, you know, all the terrible things Bashar al-Assad was doing to his people, you know, murdering innocent protesters. And then you hear, but those protesters are fighting back with their anti-tech missiles. And they're, you think, hang on a second. <laughs> Is there something we haven't been told here? Anyway, I just found myself lying awake at night thinking about Syria. And I'm thinking... Why am I thinking about Syria? You know, I have no connection with place. I don't even know where it is. And uh, I'm thinking, come on, God, don't tell me you've got something in mind for me in Syria. I've got enough to do here, you know. And then I bump into the Syrian guy down at the local mosque who's a friend and because uh, we were working with the local Shia community. Uh, most of us says to me, Dave, don't believe what you hear about Syria. He says, I'm, fr- I'm from Syria. I, said, I just come back from there. He says, I'm, I'm in my home watching reports of on CNN about stuff going on in home. So I look out the window, it's not happening. Yeah. You know, okay. And then I'm talking with a mate in um, Ireland 
who's head of the Irish Palestinian Advocacy, Irish Palestinian work, I think it's called, because we're both involved in Palestinian human rights work. And uh, he says, I don't believe what's going on in Syria. And uh, I say, no, I don't either. And uh, anyway, he, he's a good Catholic. He, he said, I'm going to call the church in Homs, find out what's happening. He calls them and they put him on to a woman called Mother Agnes because she speaks good English. Next thing, Mother Agnes is on Talkback Radio in Ireland. <laughs> next thing, uh, Mother Agnes is on CNN or something. And then next thing, Mother Agnes has to leave the country because she's getting death threats because she's telling the wrong story. And I get a call from this guy in Ireland. says, look, Mother Agnes is with me here in Dublin. <laughs> we want to come to Australia. Can you, like, help organise accommodation for us? I said, look, I'll organise, help organise a tour. So next thing I'm sort of organising this tour for Magnus, Mother Agnes of, of um, Holmes, you know, in uh, Sydney. And uh, then Mother says to me, you know, are you going to come to Syria with us? And I say, yeah, of course. I mean, what was I supposed to say, you know? Um, yeah. So that was the... I then made a series of... I made a couple of trips with Mother into Damascus and other parents. So I met Mary Maguire, a wonderful woman and friend who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1974 for her work in Northern Ireland. And... Um, but she was a, a, a negotiator between the two sides, wasn't she? Yeah, she ran a group called the Peace People. Yeah. And so she, she's, you know, I, I'm having trouble getting in contact with her at the moment, so I'm worried she's okay. But, um, yeah, I did two, two tours of Syria with May Reed and Mother and uh, some other activists. And then in the second of those, I took some, uh, Solid Breen, the boxing champion, with me, and we started looking at the possibility of doing the Boxers for Peace thing. So... Subsequent to that, I mean, Boxers for Peace has made, what, six trips or something in Syria. We've boxed in the ruins of Palmyra and with various Syrian Olympic teams. And last year we had a really good experience. Can I share it? Oh, is that Jodidi? Um, Jodidi is the place where St Paul supposedly fell off his horse. And if you know the story of St Paul's religious experience on the road to Damascus, well, apparently it was at Jodidi. It was the spot on the road to Damascus where he fell off the horse, and there's a big statue there of St Paul falling off his horse. Um, we were told, you know, oh, they're doing a service there, they want you to come as their guest. Okay. Uh, we got there late, I can't remember why. So some, you, you, there's lots of politics involved and you have to go around and shake their hands to all the right people and we ended up getting delayed. When we get there, there's a service going on somewhere in the background, but they're waiting for us at the city gate. There's all these little kids with boxing gloves on. Oh, wow. Very deja vu to the experience in Mashhad in Iran when they took me to that orphanage with all these kids whose, they're Hazara, Hazara kids, Hazara Afghan um, kids whose fathers had died in Syria fighting the uh, Takfiri in Syria. And so when I got there and there's all these little kids lined up headgear as well and boxing gloves on. I mean, they're tiny little kids. You know? And I walk up to the one of the smallest kids there, he wouldn't be more than five or six years old, and put my hands up in that sort of universal sign to sort of here, throw a glove into my hand, and he winds back and throws a punch straight into my groin. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, the, the deja vu thing was going to this place in Jodidi and seeing again a little line-up of kids <laughs> and thinking, here we go. Oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> I can feel the pain yeah. returning. Yeah, uh, anyway... Obviously learnt nothing because I walk up to the first kid and put the hands up again. And here, thankfully, punches me in the hands and 
we start mucking around and uh, yeah, I just start mucking around with all these kids and we start doing a bit of boxing with them and that sort of stuff. And uh, then someone says, oh, will you, you pray for my baby? And I said, of course I will, you know. So I start praying for one kid after another. And then someone says, bring out the blind girl. Let him pray for her. I'm thinking, hang on a second. <laughs> Where's this going? And uh, next, next minute there's this lovely girl, probably 11, 12 years old, you know, blind, being let out with her hands in front of her. Will you pray for her? Yes, of course, you know, so I pray for the poor girl. And then she, they say, is there anything we can do for her? And I think, uh, hang on, I've got Dr. Lou with me. Because I had Dr. Lou Lewis, the boxing doctor, came with me on that last thing. Dr. Lou, over here, please. Anyway, he comes over and he's, he looks at the girl, gets his little a light out he had in his pocket there, and he goes, this girl's got cataracts, she could be healed. Really? You know, yes, yes. And after that, it's, then there's another guy going, I have this skin condition. And Dr. Lou's saying, it's called eczema. Leave me, I'm writing down a prescription for you here. Take that to the chemist. You know? so I thought it was just like a scene out of the Bible. You know, Jesus goes in, preaches, heals. Except I was doing the praying, he was doing the healing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Instead of, instead yeah, of I was outsourcing the, the healing to Dr. Lou. You know? <laughs> and, but it was complete with the Pharisee, if you know your gospel stories, because in the middle of all this, uh, that's right, then what happened is some more kids ran up and said, hey, will you referee our boxing match? And I said, yes, I will. So, But just I'm about to go do that, I get this tap on the shoulder and I spin around and there's this young Orthodox priest, you know, the full gear, the black hat and everything. He says, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm about to go referee a boxing match. He says, you can't do that. I say, why not? And he says, because you're a bunna, you're a priest. And because the church service is still going. Okay, and I look back, I can see a couple hundred yards away, there is still a church service going. And so I went and refereed the boxing match. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, what do you do? I mean, it's just... You know, like the, the sort of Pharisees who come and say, stop having fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought, sorry, mate. And I know I was their guest, but, yeah, you know, it was, uh, that was an experience. Where were we? I got lost. <laughs> Syria, Jadidi. It was one of the highlights of that, that trip. It was a beautiful time. Beautiful people. The Syrian people are beautiful people. And they're suffering worse now than ever, ever, um, because of the sanctions, these new Caesar sanctions coming from the US is just designed to starve the people and turn them against the government, which never happens. You know, when you oppress the people, they get closer around their government. So I don't know what. Is it just vindictiveness on the part of the US? They want to do this to the people? I mean, the sanctions have been crippling for so long. You know, they're in Malula, where a Christian village up in the mountains where Jabhat al-Nusra invaded, I think, in 2014 and just destroyed the town, murdered so many people. And the Syrian army came in and they kicked those guys out. And it's now six years later, they haven't been able to rebuild because they don't have the building materials because of the sanctions. You know, this is what it's like everywhere. Um, you know, I was there last year with um, a lovely young girl who was working with kids with cancer and, and dis disabled kids in general, fantastic work they were doing. So the kids with cancer said, so basically, you sit with them while they die because there's no medication. You know, they get expired medications from third world countries because they can't, because of the sanctions. Yeah. 
you know. It's like I, the leftovers of the leftovers. Yeah, but they cannot get. I don't know if you know how it works. You'll get uh, the Hillary Clinton and people saying, oh, "Of course, we're not sanctioning food or medication," <laughs> and technically they don't. But one thing I discovered while I was there is it falls down at a company level. So if you're running an export company, right, the sanctions are if you accidentally or deliberately send a widget to um, Syria, the sanctions are so crippling they're designed to bankrupt you overnight. Yeah, right? yeah. The, 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 the fines, the yeah. fines, sorry, if you send something to a sanctioned country, try and trade with a sanctioned country. So crippling. Uh so while technically your company can still send food and medications, like, the thing is at a, at a direct board, when it comes to the board of directors, no, no board in their right mind is going to say, yeah, well, we'll stop shipping B and C, but we'll still do A and yeah. No, no, the risks are so great that either, number one, you accidentally ship a widget yeah. with your food and medicine, or number two, your competitors accuse you of doing that and hold you up in court for the next 10 years while you're trying to prove you're innocent. Yeah, yeah that no board of directors in their right mind will approve any further trade with Syria or a sanctioned country. And the people who put these in place know that. So they know that they're crippling the civilian population with these sanctions. And that's why you can't get medicines. You know, same in Iran. You know, just when you're in Iran, you know, it's like every day you're aware that the Americans hate you. You know, why can't I get cancer medication for my dad now? Why can't I? You know, it's because the Americans hate us. And people on the other side of that equation don't understand. What's, what's the problem with the Iranians or the Syrians? What? You know, I mean, really, there's very, I've, I experienced very little resentment, you know, and never in Syria has anybody said, why are you doing this to us? Because Australia's been involved. Yeah. Our Air Force killed Syrian soldiers at DSO last year, was it? You know, we've been, we've got blood in our hands too. We're involved in the sanctions. But, you know, you meet the people, I understand it's not you, it's the government. They're very forgiving people. I don't know if I'd be that forgiving. Mm. And so you walk into a place like that that is so devastated, where the people are so in need of, of basic rights even, mm. not even basic, just goods, they need they need their rights as well. Um, and... And you take boxing into it to something like that, and it brings such joy to them. Mm. That seems like it's got such a power to it to to just bring out the best in, in a group of kids. That look at one level, it must seem extremely trivial. But yeah, well, you that's, know, I'm not that's bringing food; point. I'm bringing boxing gloves. Yeah. You know, for goodness' sake. But it seems to bring such. Oh, it, it, look! It just again, it connects with people on a very very basic human level. You know what I mean? We're touching each other. We're engaging physically with each other. We're having fun. I mean, once I remember we were in Holmes and uh, in an area, and they said, here's the place, you know. Okay, get out of your boxing gloves. Just put on a bit of a show. Okay, and where we were, we were in front of a group of people that were holding up photos, and they said, well, no, this where you are was bombed last week. There was a big explosion here, and these photos were all of the people who died. You know, these people were killed here Yeah, wow. on this spot. Why are we doing it here? They said, because the kids need to learn to play again here. Anyway, you know, we were there for maybe 15 minutes ago or so and then someone comes to us, right, time to move, time to move, time to move. They, they know where you are. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. I just they're, take your word. They're moving in. You know, that was, a, that was a very hairy time. That was, I think, 2014. Things were very bad then. 
in in those moments, do you feel guided by the hand of God or protected by God to be able to go into some of those places? And look, I think it's like when you're in the boxing ring, you don't remember the fight when you're in there. You know, like you're just moving on adrenaline or whatever it is, and you just you throw your shots, you move around, you try and keep your cool. Then afterwards, someone tells you what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, we almost got killed four times. Yeah, but, you know, look, it's intense, but you just you keep moving, you keep doing what you got to do. I don't know if that's been guided by anything. The flow state, isn't it? Yeah, yes. <laughs> I always think that, that um, you know, when you're in a ring, you get into a flow state. You just do things which you didn't know you were capable of doing and, uh, uh, you know. Why did you move there? I don't know. But that's thankfully I still got ahead because I did move there. <laughs> Maybe it's the same in, in that some of these situations as well. And I don't know, you know, I mean, I don't think I was ever in any real danger. I mean, I've been close to where bombs have dropped and missiles are firing and things like that. But, you know, how close was I to something? Did anyone ever have me in their sights as a sniper? I've got no idea. Mm. You know, and that's what I said, you know. I, with some of the Australian friends I brought with me, and I brought my son and daughter with me there. You know, what do we do if there's a problem? I said, well, if there's a problem, we, we won't know anything about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One know, way or another, you um, might Danny, know you, you met here earlier, he came to Syria with me twice as our cameraman. Oh, you okay. Know? And um, he brought a book on, like, How to Survive a Terrorist Attack or something like that. I said, mate, oh, I'm not interested in reading it because... <laughs> If they go for us, we won't we won't know anything about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know the same war. Ninety something percent of people who get killed, they have no idea where it came from, and we wouldn't know either. Mm. And if we came close, we'd have no idea. But yeah, I mean, I'm just it's I think I must have been protected. But what do I know? Yeah. So many other people weren't. So many other people. Maybe I've still got a role to play there, I hope. Yeah. Oh, sure. Because Lord knows there's still work to do that. You mentioned as well earlier that you uh, have a relationship with the local Muslim population Mm. as well, and that's obviously been uh, useful and fruitful in your time in in Syria and and the Middle East more broadly. Yeah, I'm I'm about to publish a book. So, like, within the next month... um, we're talking about publication date now, before between now and the end of the year. Christians and Muslims can be friends. Yeah, that's the book title. Right, so pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah. What what do you see as the place for those sort of interfaith dialogues? Well, my thesis in the book is very simple: that every religion has two sides to it. It has a doctrinal side and and a, a tribal side. It's what we believe and who we are. You know what I mean? Where we belong, and no one ever goes to war over what we believe. We go to war because your tribe thinks they're better than my tribe and your tribe killed my sister. And, you know, like it's, um, it's, it's tribal identity that's the problem. And, um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having being proud of your tribe, but it's when you think your tribe's better than my tribe or my tribe's better, and that's when we, we go to war. So tribal identity becomes a sort of... Um, the means which which governments use to manipulate people, you know, um, into an us and them uh, confrontation. 
And the, the, the goal, I think, is not to deny beliefs or even deny tribal membership. It's just to move beyond us and them, mm. you know, um, to a point where you can say, hey, um, I'm proud of my tribe, uh, but I can see your tribe's done a lot of good stuff too. <laughs> <You know? laughs> or something like that, you know what I mean? And not confuse the two. I believe a lot of different things from you. I probably do believe a lot of different things from you. That's okay, all right? Uh, let's sit down. I'm going to educate you in a few things and see if I can convince you that my way is superior to yours or something. You know, let's do that, but do it with respect. Yeah. The, see, the issue is not that we disagree. The issue is that it's it's tribal identity. That's the problem. And tribal identity, not just a religious thing. That you know, out here the mantra is, "Oh, you got to be Australian first. You know that you're. Your national tribal identity is more important than your religious tribal identity. I'm not sure why that's true, but again, it becomes a point of unity which can mobilise the entire country for some political purpose. Okay, um, and where religion, on the other hand, always a very private thing. Bullshit. <laughs> Historically, religion's been, uh, you know, I mean, it's been at least a, a political thing, a family thing, it's a community thing, it's a tribal thing. You know, this is very 21st century because we tried to replace religious identity with national identity, presumably because it's a more easier uh, tool for politicians to manipulate in in, in the current uh, time. But, um, yeah, tribalism can be anything. Tribalism can be, you know, I identify as, you know, a Volvo driver. Well, I don't, but you know what I mean? <laughs> You know, I don't know. God like, it can be the colour of your eyes. It can be any particular... The colour of your skin, yeah. right? Well, colour of your skin you, very much. You you know? see, I'm a black man or a white man or yeah. whatever, and that makes me superior to you who's got the different coloured skin. Yeah. I mean, as if, right? But you can you can manipulate tribal identity along any number of communal identifiers. But religion is an easy one because it sort of touches you at a lot of different levels. It's got a ritual aspect and a family aspect and a historical aspect and, you know, taps deep into your identity. So this is who I am, you know, and this is who we are. And our tribe fought with your tribe for the last thousand years over in Morocco or whatever it is. You pull it out and you'll find some reason for thinking that your tribe are a bunch of bastards. Let's say, all of this is people for political reasons manipulate the uh, boundaries of tribal identity to achieve their own political goals, you know. So, yeah, the thesis of the book is let's move beyond us and them. Let's not pretend, you know, I think within interfaith dialogue there tends to be two approaches broadly. One is sort of, look, we're already the same, you know, and the other is, you know, so why are we worried? And the other is the other extreme is we are different and we hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's got to be another one that says, hey, you know, we've got a lot of difference between us and I respect that. I don't think you're right. In fact, I think you're tragically wrong about a whole variety of things, but I love you heaps and I want to talk to you about those things and respect that, that you're where you're coming from. It's not because you're stupid. You've got your own history, your own tradition. Explain to me why you believe those things you do. Maybe that will help me, you know. Um, if we can do that, we have the confidence in ourselves and in our own belief and in our own tribal identity to be able to actually openly talk and listen and dialogue with respect with each other. There, there's no problem. Yeah, so that's my angle with uh, 
Christians and Muslims can be friends. Move beyond tribalism. Don't deny the differences in doctrinal positions between traditional religions. No need. But um, dialogue and disagree with respect as friends. Learn from each other. You know? I mean, <laughs> I used to say in, in university days, it's really hard for anyone to be totally wrong. <laughs> Everybody's got something to, to contribute, you know. So yeah, but also yeah. it's really hard for anyone to be totally right. Well, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of the guardians of you know my own religious tradition will seem to believe they've got everything worked out. You know, and that's just arrogance. And yeah, that, that's what. That's the spirit that creates the sort of tribalism that leads to division and violence. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> but it sounds like there's a lot to come from just sitting down, talking, connecting, jumping in the ring. <laughs> yeah, they come together. I got a lot of Muslim brothers I box with, you know. There's some interesting connections there. But it's all about moving beyond us and them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just to us, just us, just all in this together, man. You know, developing that bloody problem. hell. We've got enough problems, you know. <laughs> we yeah. got to face them together. Yeah, you know. Well, it sounds like you've got these continual fights that you keep fighting. I know you've got your website that that is out there that publishes both your works and and the works of others. Yeah, I mean, fatherdave.org, and I've got a few other websites as well. Christiansandmuslims.com is the one I'm working on at the moment, which is, you know, associated with I'm putting up interviews with a lot of Muslim friends and just trying to work on that particular front. You know, prayersforsyria.com is my Syria site. Israelandpalestine.org. I've got them all out there, you know, yeah. sort of uh, not actively working on all of them, but, you know, it's hard to, you want to make a difference. You know, the web's always given us an not always, but more recently give us an avenue where we still got independent speech. Yeah. You know. But, um, yeah, we've got to find ways of continuing to be able to speak and think independently, and that's becoming more and more difficult, I think. Yeah. yeah I'm not... It's, the future looks very bleak from where I stand, so I've got to try and address it with hope and believe that the Spirit of God is still able to change things and just... I want a clearer vision of how that can happen. Well, Father Dave, on that uh, inspirational and hopeful <laughs> note, that's probably a good place to leave it. Um, so thank you very much for, for having a chat with me. Oh, good, brother. And, yeah, if anyone wants to check out Father Dave's stuff, they can go to his websites that he mentioned, fatherdave.org. fatherdave.com.au, christiansandmuslims.com, the list goes on. Yeah, <laughs> you can check out your new book. Yeah. yeah, yeah, hopefully it will be out within the next month or so. Yeah. We'll do a, a fun launch. And uh, who knows, we may have Anthony Mundine or someone here to box me to help me. Raise, um, raise a few bags. Yeah. He's in the book, you see, so uh, along with a lot of others. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, Father Dave, thank you very much. Good to, good to spend the time with you, brother. And thank, thank you, everyone else, for joining us.